All right, well, turn to Acts 2, sort of our starting point this morning. We've been generally sort of uh, just trying to look at discipleship. Acts is sort of the beginning of discipleship in the church. We read in the end of all the Gospels that here's the mission, the commission of the church. We read different words. Go out and preach the Gospel to all nations. Uh, There's make disciples of the nations. These are all just sort of synonymous terms. And so if we're going to understand how that's done, we can get creative ourselves, but we need to be creative within boundaries. Um, I always love it when someone comes up with this really cool angle of, of bringing the gospel to their particular culture, their particular location, that kind of thing. And so God's people have always been creative, but we want to be creative within boundaries. And uh, that's always my concern. Is we, there's, there's big boundaries, there's wide boundaries, but just stick within those boundaries because there's reasons for those boundaries. And so as we look at how disciples are made, how to, what is a disciple, past the gospels, what is discipleship, really a sort of a quasi-biblical term, there's no such term in the Bible, but we use it, we use it a lot, it's become a big giant handle like the word trinity, so be good to try to understand what those boundaries are. So we've come to the book of Acts and we started in chapter two at the beginning, we looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit on people um, it was an event that happened. <clears throat> Looked at that event a bit. And then we get to Peter starts preaching and his initial text that he preaches from is Joel. And sometimes if you try to memorize the Bible, it can be drudgery. But when you're in conversations and the Holy Spirit with, is with you, all of that drudgery starts to pay off. Passages just come to mind that you couldn't really recite if someone asked you the day before or the day after. And uh, so that's what was happening to Peter, I'm sure. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in a significant way. And uh, so he could bring to bear in that message all of his teachings he had heard in the synagogues, all the things he'd heard from Jesus, all of his own personal uh, encounters with the Old Testament scriptures of that day. So here's this event, some people are mocking, some people are saying, well, you know, it's, they're, they're drunk. That would be the naturalist of today. All kinds of explanations for supernatural realities. And Peter says, no, this is what is spoken through the prophet Joel. And so it's been a couple weeks since we've been here, and also last week was a, a marathon of VBS. It's always, it's always a marathon, but when you're done, you're like, yes, that was worth it. And I really appreciate everybody just making all their contributions, whether it was one talent or five talent contributions, everybody making them. And I always remember someone stated that you, you know the sophistication of a culture and of a sort of a country, a government, you know, some boundary of people, is because they can field an army. And you know the sophistication of a church is because they can field a VBS. I mean, that's my final conclusion on the matter. It's, it's hard work. A lot goes into it. Uh, uh, but the Lord always blesses it, sometimes immediately, sometimes in years to come. So Peter, he's saying, hey, what you just are seeing, actually, who knows, maybe those flames of fire are still burning on some of the folks. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And so the first thing we encounter and the first message preached after the resurrection of Christ, we're told how to interpret the Old Testament. And that's pretty important, pretty important for the Jews because the Jews had a whole set of interpretive principles by which when you read the New Testament, you find they clearly missed Jesus Christ. And much of it was because of their interpretive method. And so Peter's going to first of all give a corrective. What you're seeing here with your own eyes and experiencing is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. 
And it's sort of hard to understand at first because as you read the Bible and you read it from beginning to end, you're reading chronologically through the Bible, and there's these prophecies, promises, types, shadows, all pointing forward to something yet to come. You have that sense of things that this isn't the ultimate reality. This isn't the final expression of things. There's something off in the future. You sort of get that idea of it. So you're reading it this way, but when you get to the New Testament, you you realize, well, I've got to interpret it backwards. I've been reading it forwards and trying to see how things, you know, go into that New Testament. Once I get to the New Testament, and here's the fulfillment of things, and this in the New Testament is that, which here was spoken by the prophet Joel, but you can basically do that with any prophecy. Anything in the Old Testament finds its purpose, its significance, its realization in Christ. And so we have to take the fulfillment and interpret backwards. So here you have Peter saying Acts 2 is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He introduces from Joel the last days. And and the reason I'm going through this is because this is going to be significant to the rest of the message. We really sort of have to have our our, our minds again immersed in this. Joel speaks of the last days, and the last days we find out is an era, not a small era, but a big one. It's been 2,000 years of last days so far. This is the terminology of Scripture. It's important. And in Joel, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so we've seen that these last days, this era begins with, well, right there in Acts chapter 2. We know exactly when it happened. 50 days, 50 days after the death and resurrection of Christ, 50 days after the Passover, we know when the last days began. And Joel goes on to say, these last days have a beginning, but they also have an ending. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, sun turned into darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and the magnificent day. Joel speaks of a final intervention of God in the cosmic order and he, <clears throat> the heavens above and a final in- intervention of God in human affairs, the earth below. So the last days have a beginning, but they also have a final day of fulfillment. They will come to an end. They have an expiration date. Now some of the things in Joel can point to things fulfilled in the Old Testament era. But all are agreed that the final two statements in Joel from chapter 2, 31 and 32, and then chapter 3 are talking about a cosmic and final day of the Lord. Everybody agrees with that. Now the details of that (laughs) become interesting, but that there is that day. Jesus takes up this language of Joel and other prophets when he speaks of his second coming. At my second coming, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's going to be visible. It's going to be a big deal. And then it's going to appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. He's going to show up himself. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Everybody's going to see him. This is a resurrection of every human being that's ever lived. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This isn't secret. It's sudden, but not secret. Everybody knows. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. It's not only a visually amazing day, but it's going to be an audible day. Noisy. Now this passage in Matthew that we've just read is Matthew 24. It's part of a sort of an outline of things that Jesus gives, some steps as he goes through probably 12, 13 things here. And what we just read would be called the parousia. And the parousia is a good word to know. We know agape, you should know parousia. And parousia is a word that just simply means the appearance of something. And so Jesus is going to be coming. He's coming again, but it's not necessarily a process. Well, Jesus is on his way, and in 30 days he's going to show up. It's not what it is. Jesus appears. It's not a process. His coming. It's an actual reality. He shows up 
and all the nations realize and gasp in fear for the most part. God is real and we're accountable. But if you skip over the explanations here, I've tried to get an outline. I know how some of you in the back may not be able to see it, but there's sort of these, uh, an outline of chapter 23 through 25. And in between this Matthew 24, 29 to 31, in between that and Matthew 25, 31, there's parables. There's a few statements about when things are gonna happen, but there's parables. And so if you skip over those parables, not that you should, but just to understand sort of the, uh, I don't know, the steps of the, in the description of the second coming, if you go from Matthew 24, 31 to Matthew 25, 31, you see the continuity of his statement. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him and he will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him and there's the sheep and there's the goats and there's the assessment. What people do really shows who they are and who they are will determine their internal destiny. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so by the time you're done with Matthew 25, you realize you have not only finished the day of judgment, but you have now arrived into eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, and all that is in them. And so that's sort of the way to read Matthew in terms of the actual events of the second coming. So Joel, as interpreted by Jesus, as brought to us by Jesus, not only brings us to the day of the Lord, but it brings us to a day of the Lord that culminates in and opens the door to and inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. This is the structure. It's a simple structure. I try to make it as simple as I can with my charts. There's one final addition that Joel makes. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. During this era, during this era of the last days, people are going to call on the name of the Lord and they're going to be saved. So this calling on the name of the Lord brings about personal salvation in the lives of human beings. And if we take all of Matthew into perspective, the lives of human beings for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Call on the name of the Lord. Trust in him. Look to him. And you shall be saved. And sort of sum it up in this gospel of the kingdom, interesting, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus comes at the end of a period in which the focus and mission of the church is to bring the gospel to all nations. And it's important to read something like this and really take it to heart. This period between the day of Pentecost and the great and terrible day of the Lord the day of judgment for all mankind. This era is marked by gospel preaching. And sometimes when we think gospel preaching, we might think in simplistic terms. But it's a, a whole gospel, a comprehensive gospel. A gospel that brings people to Jesus Christ and a gospel that does baptize them and a gospel that does teach them a gospel that promotes men and women and boys and girls who are followers of Jesus to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, a whole gospel. And when that project is finished, that purpose is accomplished, Jesus will return. And so if we look at Joel's prophecy and how it is brought to bear into the New Testament by Peter, what we call the history of redemption. That is that historical process and outworking of God saving people from their sin that happens in the daily lives of individuals all over this planet. God working his purposes in the earth down to the individual level. Jesus said, I call my sheep by name. Personal means Jesus knows every one of his people by name and he calls them by name. That's the history of redemption. 
And the first coming of Christ inaugurates this era of the last days, and his second coming finishes that era and completes it. And in between, we bring the gospel to the nations. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple. Disciple the nations. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Now some want to inject into this era that we are currently in something called Christian nationalism. Some of you are familiar with it. Others want to inject in here sort of something that's similar but has some you know, nuanced differences. Postmillennial theonomy. Emphasis on theonomy. And they try to say that that's what we're to be about in this era. And the thing is, is when you challenge that, I guess, doctrine or belief or whatever, because it's presented and promoted everywhere these days, the only thing they have to offer is, well, there's some places in the Old Testament that talk about something. And I'm like, that's it? You're going to say that we're to change our focus or add to our focus this Christian nationalism trying to make our country, at least America, to try to bring it back, as it were, to be under the laws of God and theonomy, even bring it back under the laws of Moses? Where is that in the New Testament? They can't find a place. I haven't seen a place. They haven't shown me a place yet. They've taken me to places and will take you to places where it will say that, you know, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Pretty simple statement until they get a hold of it and then they say, yeah, but it doesn't mean, and they just twist it and turn it because it doesn't fit their theological perspective. But the rest of the New Testament does not bear out their interpretation. And I only say this and I only warn this is because warn about this is because you're going to hear this everywhere and it can catch you off guard. You know, you hear it for the first time and you think, oh gosh, yeah, our country is a wreck and we really needed to get fixed and we, get, we need to get all the, what now amounts to whoever, whoever thought you'd be saying this. Uh, the the, the neo-Marxists, we got to get them out of power and get, you know, the people can't even figure out men are men and women are women. We got to get them out of power and We've got to get back to sanity in our country, and that's a great thing to want to do. But that's not the mission of the church. It may be your personal purpose as a citizen in this country, and that's fine, but don't make it the mission of the church. That's my point. Interesting, someone wrote, actually all of us, a letter. If you're here today and you're in a church, you've been written a letter by Eric Metaxas, called a letter to the American church. And I've been listening through it. I'm almost finished with it. <clears throat> and I really like Eric Metaxas. His book, uh, uh, I just uh, finished one a while back, um, is, is, is Atheism Dead? Really great book. Now, he's a, an old earther guy, and that's just fine. Almost all those guys are, so you just have to filter that when you, when you listen to it. But it was a really great book. And Eric Metaxas has done a, a tremendous job in terms of confronting the culture and things like that. So I'm glad for him, and I recommend him. He does Socrates in the City and other things. It's good to listen to, because he brings in really interesting speakers and things. But he's written this book that basically starts out that the church's mission is to fix America, to stand against the tide of evil. And throughout the book, he compares the American church to the German church in Nazi Germany. And the thing about the book, it's not that I wouldn't recommend reading the book, I would just recommend if you read it, just realize that he has some assumptions that he starts with that he never demonstrates from Scripture. He never proves. He never demonstrates from Scripture that the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, which transcends every nation, that the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to fix a country's political system. It's not our mission. Not the church's mission. As individuals, we could do that. As individuals, we could, you know, become involved in, in a lot of different things. I just warn you, if you think politics is going to work, 
me and Gwen were in it for several years and we were sorely disappointed. Um, you just start to find out that this politics isn't the answer to America. Um, changing America is done in classrooms and things like that. But anyway, in this book, he, he says these things and he says, and I could never really figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. He'll talk about standing against abortion, sure. I mean, we do that and we have people at Piedmont Women's Center. He talks about the, you know, the gender identity absurdities and it's like, okay, we all pretty much know that it's wrong. It's pretty simple. And in the beginning, God made them male and female and marriage is one man and one woman. I mean, these are simple, basic things in the Bible. So I'm not sure what he wants me to do when he writes me this letter in book form. But somehow, someway, I just think, and, 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 and I would say, okay, some of the things they had to say are true. I remember the book of Revelation, at least my view of it. In chapter 11, right, there's uh, the two prophets, the two witnesses, and fire comes out of their mouth and burns everybody. Well, if, if that understanding is that's just the witness of the church in every generation, we do have things to say. They're going to feel like fire to people. But I'm not sure what that really looks like, if that's political activism or something more. So I'm a little ambivalent about his book, but when he made the statement in his book that some people just say, oh, we're just supposed to be about evangelism. We're just supposed to preach Jesus. Now again, I know that some people can dumb the gospel down. I, I get that. But when he said that, I just thought, okay, what are you after? What do you think our mission is supposed to be? What do you think success is? How many empires have risen and fallen in human history? You see, God, you know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, we judge, or 5, we judge those that are within the body, those who are naming the name of Christ, but those that are without, God judges. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. That's not the church's business out there. That's the business of a sovereign God of a reigning Christ who rules the nations with a rod of iron and will deal with those nations and, and guide human history for his own purposes. What we want to speak to them about is that there is a God. This is God's world. We want to speak to them and say, hey, there are basics. There are basic human realities of, of maleness and femaleness and marriage, and if you abandon those things, your, your culture will disintegrate. And it will. And we can say those things to individuals, people who are caught up in that ideology and mentality and just say to them, no, the Bible's true. This is God's world and this is God's word and, and here's what truth is and here's what clarity is and, and most people will mock us and most people will not want to hear but you never know. If someone had just told me about Jesus when I was 17, it would have saved me a whole lot of headache in my life because I would have listened but no one ever told me. If someone had said, hey, here's Christian morality, you know, you need to consider it, I would have considered it. No one ever told me. So I had to work everything out for my own, and a 17-year-old usually doesn't accomplish that well. I know I didn't. So let's stick with the scriptures when Joel says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's just stay there. Let's just, let's just keep this our focus. We're worried about our country. Paul says pray. And if we think praying isn't enough, well, we think that our political activism is gonna change things. You gotta pray and be active. But be active about the right issues. So, just a thought from Joel. This morning I want to go through the New Testament and show how this last days, this simple picture that I've given, is all over the apostolic letters. It's the structure of things. So that when you read the apostolic letters in which that structure of last days is sort of presented, maybe with different terminology from a different angle, you go, oh, that's what that's been talking about all this time. And so that's our purpose this morning. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us for the remainder. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. Lord, we thank you that we do live in the last days. 
We live in those days in which all the prophets that came before and all the men of God who came before and all the people of God who came before who were looking for the kingdom of God, they were, they were all wishing they could be here, that they could be us, that they could be part of this time period in history. David would have loved to be us, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Abraham. Lord, all these men knew that their faith was pointing towards something greater in human history than they were personally experiencing at the time. And they knew that there was a great and glorious kingdom to come. And here we are in it. And Lord Jesus, as we look at your words in the Gospels, as we look at your words through your apostles, Lord, just pray that uh, this reality would grip us, that the blessedness of it, the glory of it, that you are at the right hand of God. Lord, that Revelation chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 4 and 5 or other places where they just present you in this in this glory and language that uh, just transcends our understanding, that we would have a sense of who you are and who we are and what is our place right now in your history of redemption. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're turning to Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, and Mark's an interesting gospel. I was talking to someone the other day and just sort of mentioning that Mark wasn't a literary genius. There, everybody who studies Mark in the original language, that, which wouldn't be me, I read them. I, I, can, I can read Greek, but I can't, I can't live in it. But the people that do, they notice that Mark uses some unusual Greek constructions which actually break Greek grammar. So his grammar teacher would say, B minus for your, your, your literary production here. A plus for the, for the content, but B minus for, for your literary pr- production. But Mark would say, you know, teacher, that B minus is unfair because you see what I've done? I've introduced actually a whole almost brand new genre of literature called the gospel. And the purpose of my gospel is to give you a sense of eyewitness testimony, to give you a sense that you were there. And so... Mark, what he does is he breaks the standard Greek construction and rearranges things because he's not so much being a literary writer, he's being a journalist. And he is, I don't know, maybe the preeminent journalist of the first century. Because those Greek constructions basically make you stand behind Mark and kind of watch as he describes things happening. And that's the genius, or one of the items of genius in his gospel. He's a journalist. But Mark is recording the words of Jesus. He takes you very quickly from the beginning, a very brief opening, one sentence. Others have whole chapters. He has one sentence. And he brings you very quickly to the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. So we read in Mark 1, 14 and 15, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now we often find the phrase and use the phrase, gospel of Christ, occurs eight times as far as I can tell in the New Testament. Just simply the gospel occurs about 52 times. There's the gospel of peace or the gospel to the circumcision, just sort of scattered around. But here we have this phrase, the gospel of God. What does it mean? Is it something totally different? Is this a different gospel or is this just another angle, another way of describing some of the unique features of this good news? Gospel simply means good news. It's good news that is widely proclaimed and gladly received. It's the best definition I've ever heard. Just take, just brings all of the essence of what gospel means together. Good news, widely proclaimed and gladly received. It's unique because of its content. It's unique because of its subject. Its subject is the the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Its subject material, its content brings in the salvation of the world. Kind of a unique genre because it has absolutely unique content. 
But this gospel of God is used. Jesus came preaching, it says, the gospel of God. And what that tells us is this gospel is ultimately from God. It's God's good news. It's not just the good news of Jesus and God was maybe reluctant. It's like, no, this is from God. Ultimately, the source goes all the way up to God the Father. This is his good news to a world of humanity lost in sin and darkness. And this is the entire mission of Jesus. He came into Galilee preaching the gospel. He said, for this end did I come. And so his preaching of the gospel and his accomplishment of redemption on a Roman cross, that's the mission of Jesus. There was a Roman empire that had all kinds of wickedness about it, that oppressed all kinds of people, that had patriarchal hierarchies and all the things everybody's all upset about today. And Jesus did not address those things. When they came to make him a king, sort of a Christian nationalism of that day, he said, no, he ran, he left. You're not, I'm not here to do that. When they came and asked him and said, hey, you know, my, my brother didn't divide the inheritance from our father fairly. Can you sort this out? He said, no, that's not what I came to do. It's not my purpose. You fi- figure that out yourself. He came preaching the gospel. He came preaching the good news. And as sort of a summary statement we should really take to heart He came preaching the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled. He didn't come and say, hey, here's the gospel, believe on me and you'll be saved. That's true. But that leaves out something that Jesus prefaces everything with. The time is fulfilled. I have come and I am introducing a new era in the history of redemption. The time is fulfilled. All of the previous historical preparation for the kingdom of God and the gospel of God is now in place. The empires have been situated the way God wanted. Alexander the Great has come and brought the Greek language to basically all of the Mediterranean world and beyond so that the gospel can go and people can read an Old Testament and there's a common language that it can be brought in. A unique time. History has come to the place where the time is fulfilled and revelation has come to the place where the time is fulfilled for the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. All of the types and shadows have been established. All of the varied circumstances of people obeying God or not obeying God have been represented in those histories and the outcome shown and demonstrated. The Psalms and Proverbs have been written ultimately to act as the, the, the place that Christians can go and can read and find solace. That yeah, when I'm in depression, this is actually something that happens. It's not a great place to be, but it's not an ungodly place to be. Many, many a psalmist has had to battle depression. And they show you how to get out of it, how to work your way through it. The wisdom of God has been just captured in the book of Proverbs so we can live our lives and raise our families with it. The prophets have come and they have, over the space of several hundred years, they have had shown what is this coming kingdom going to be. And they've outlined that there's this servant of the Lord, there's this Messiah. And he's going to come and he's going to die for the people. And they've outlined a new covenant. And they've outlined being filled with the Holy Spirit, being born of God. Everything is ready. The time is fulfilled. Malachi has said, hey, in the last chapter of the Bible, there's going to come one in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist. Look for him. That's the last thing we hear. And now John the Baptist shows up and Jesus says the time is fulfilled. This terminology, time is fulfilled, is 
important terminology. It becomes the basis for the subsequent framework of all apostolic eschatology. And remember, when we use the word eschatology, it just simply means last, the study of last things itself, but the apostolic framework of eschatology is the broad framework we've been looking at. People can argue over details, but the the reality, the substance, the power, and the significance of apostolic eschatology we find in the letters, we find in the book of Acts, it's not in those details. It's in that big framework that we've looked at. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's near, not meaning it's not really here. Jesus said, hey, if I by the spirit of God cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. But this coming of the kingdom began with Jesus and was fulfilled and finished on the day of Pentecost. So it's kind of a a transition of things. It's not, okay, yesterday we weren't in the kingdom of God, today we are. It was a transitional period. And if we look at the Old Testament, which is the foundation of all that happens, the Old Testament talks about a great era of history, human history, where God will intervene and establish the reign of his Christ, his Messiah is Mashiach. The kingdom of God is here. The reign of God through his Messiah is here. You see, the kingdom of God in in the Bible isn't just simply that God's all-powerful and sovereign. Of course, he is. The kingdom of God in the Bible is expressly that kingdom that comes into being through the Christ, through the Messiah. It is a messianic kingdom. It's here, it's at hand, Jesus said. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is here. It is the great era of history where God will bring salvation to Israel and the nations, real salvation, salvation that lasts, salvation that's permanent, salvation that will bring one into a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah chapter 66. Jesus plainly states that it's at hand, it's near, and it's going to fully arrive in Acts 2. The kingdom of God is here. And the proper response to this gospel, this good news that is widely proclaimed and gladly received by some, the response is repent and believe. The kingdom of God is a spiritual dimension. It is a spiritual domain. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he meant it. And the rest of the New Testament corroborates that statement and explains that statement and elaborates that statement, and that's where we go for its definition. Going back into the Old Testament and pulling out some scriptures kind of willy-nilly and just imposing them on the New Testament, that's just not, not the way to read the Bible or interpret it. How does the rest of the New Testament fulfill this? One enters the kingdom of God through personal repentance and faith, and it leads to a life of following Jesus in the power of the new birth of the Holy Spirit. And as we've been seeing and I've been saying, that is discipleship. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke chapter 16, verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. You see, Jesus had an eschatology. People think he didn't, or that you know, maybe he's just, just given a lot of parables about how to live your life. Well, he also makes a lot of statements about how to understand the structure of the history of redemption, and here's one of them. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Proclaimed there is kind of iffy. It, it's really not there in the Greek. It's kind of added. Um, it really should read, the law and the prophets were until John. Proclaimed kind of, I don't know, it kind of <clears throat> makes it a, into this small segment, and it's not. It's the law and the prophets were in force. They were the place you went until John. This law and prophets includes the whole Old 
Testament. It's a phrase that would be used as comprehensive, whether it's the Law of Moses, whether it's the histories, Samuel Kings, Chronicles. Whether it's the poets, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes. Whether it's what we literally call the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. Whatever is written in them, they were in force, and they were the only place you could go for truth until John. They were taught generally. The Mosaical Covenant was what you, if you were Israelite, that's what you were subject to. So we'll see even Jesus was subject to that Mosaical Covenant. But things changed with the advent of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist showed up on the scene preaching, something changed. The law and the prophets were until John and his ministry. Then something new is introduced. Jesus the Messiah is introduced. John the Baptist is the point of departure for the kingdom of God. That's when things shift from prophecy and promise to now fulfillment and reality. And we have to see that. The River Jordan is one of the most significant events in the Gospels. Of course there's the cross. Of course there's the resurrection. But it was at the River Jordan where Jesus was baptized, not only in water, but was anointed from heaven with the Holy Spirit, anointed as Messiah. The kingdom of God has begun. A new era has arrived in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, we need to understand this. This needs to frame our thinking. And so you have the law, the histories, the poets, the prophets. You have John and Jesus introducing the kingdom of God. Things have changed. A new era has begun. The law and prophets were proclaimed until John, Luke 16, 16. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. It's not the law of Moses being proclaimed anymore. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God, which the law of Moses typified. Book of Hebrews. The gospel of the kingdom of God. Again, it's a messianic kingdom. Promised and elaborated in the Old Testament, now it is preached, it is proclaimed. It is a new era of human history. And everyone is forcing his way into it. Why would Jesus say that? Well, I think as we've seen and we all suspect Discipleship, following Jesus according to his word, allegiance to him for who he is, it's not a casual thing. It's always represented by Jesus as something that is decisive and comprehensive. You don't believe on Jesus and then join the swim team, they're not equivalent. You can believe on Jesus and join the swim team. I mean, the swim team will take some uh, commitment, that's for sure, but Jesus says, you've got to give me everything. Everyone is forcing his way into it. Discipleship requires radical shifts in one's perspective, one's identity, one's allegiance, and one's lifestyle. Discipleship requires determination and steadfastness and focus and effort in your life to follow Jesus and stay true to him and deal with all the opposition you're going to encounter and all the difficulties and challenges when you're doing things for the gospel. You're not only going to get opposition, but there's, it's just a challenge. I mean, it's just work. 
Everyone is forcing their way into it. Old ways of thinking must be renewed and revised. Sin must be put to death. Righteousness must be cultivated. That's discipleship. That's the kingdom of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. Now Hebrews kind of opens up abruptly. He doesn't ease his way into his theme or to his method. He just starts right up front. Book of Hebrews throughout is, is giving you this contrast between the old and the new covenants. And the book of Hebrews begins with the foundational theme of revelation, God speaking. Where do you go for truth? God has been speaking since the beginning, spoke to Adam and Eve. Since then, he was speaking through people. It became centralized in Israel, but all along you have prophets. God spoke through the human instrumentality of the prophets of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David is said to be a prophet. All kinds of prophets, prophets that end up having documents written about what they said. Other prophets, you just see them in the histories. They, they come up and they get you know, three lines in Chronicles or something like that. God spoke to the fathers. The actual writings started to be put together and collected together starting with Moses actually collecting, collected into a book. Before that, there were literary productions and things. But God spoke. But in these last days, something changes. Something radically changes. In the previous era, God was speaking in preparatory language. His manner was, well, preparatory, looking to something yet to come. But here the writer of Hebrews saying, here we have something that is new and abiding. A new and abiding era, which he calls like Job the last days, or like Joel, sorry. And in these last days, God has spoken in the personal manifestation of his son. This is a culminating era. It is a final era, and hence it's called the last days. There's not going to be something after these days of God speaking. Spoken to us in a son. These last days are culminating and final because of the one who is speaking is an ultimate person. God is now speaking through his eternal son and there can be no greater representative of God than God himself in the flesh speaking. God speaking for God. That's why it's a final era. That's why there won't be anything after this because there's no being greater than this. No one greater than this to speak. No message greater than eternal salvation. Nothing left to speak after that, only to enjoy. Jesus and his person and work inaugurates the final era of human history and there can be no greater speaker, there can be no greater accomplishment, there can be no greater purpose, therefore there can be no greater message than the gospel of God. Is there anything greater than that? And so when someone says, well, you know, if you just say to preach the gospel, well, that's okay, but you need to be over here trying to fix America, maybe over in Britain, they're trying to fix Britain. Not that in itself it's not a noble purpose, but it doesn't have one lick of comparison to the gospel and its power and its message and its significance. Don't let people diminish the gospel in order to bring in yet another theology into the church. God has spoken in his son. 
Doesn't get any better than that. And the writer of Hebrews is not content to leave it there. He says, you need to see who this son is, this one who is speaking, this one who brings this gospel, this one who brings in the last days. The greatness of Jesus, the Son of God, is unsurpassed. How could his first coming do anything less than inaugurate the last days? In ancient times, an heir was one who inherited all things from the Father. He's been appointed the heir of all things. And that's the whole point of Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today have I begotten you. That's not about conception or birth or anything like that. That's, that's in the ancient world, you had the father and who had all his holdings and goods and things. And then there was the son who was an heir, but he didn't have anything on his own and couldn't really do anything on his own until he was installed as the, the full heir and invested. Full sonship. And that's what's happening in Psalm 2. This day have I now brought you into full sonship and you are now the heir of all things. Through whom also he made the world. God mawed all these things through his eternal son and with reference to his eternal son. Colossians chapter 1. Through whom also he made the world. Here we hear the echoes of John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Not anything. Here's the created things, and here's the uncreated. And Jesus is over here. Some try to say that the sonship of Jesus began with the incarnation. He really wasn't the son until he was you know, born doesn't work here. <laughs> Think about it. It's the Son speaking, and it's the Son through whom God made the world. Well, when did he make the world? We know at least 4,000 or 6,000 years ago. He was the Son then. He didn't get to be the Son in the first century. He was the Son when he was making the worlds. He's always been the Son. It is the Son who is speaking and making these things. The uncreated Son existed prior to the creation. And he is the radiance of his glory. Who is this one who is speaking? Who is this one who introduces the last days? He is the uncreated Son who embodies and expresses the outshining of God's essential glory. The disciples saw this in a concentrated way on the Mount of Transfiguration. when his countenance became brighter than the noonday sun. The book of Revelation continually portrays this beginning in chapter 1, portrays this, that Jesus expresses the glory of God. Chapter 1, there's Jesus with this strange description, but you may not know what all the words mean or point to, but you do know this, he's full of glory. Chapter 4 and 5, again, he's brought to the throne of God and there he is invested and given the, the reins of human history. As Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. That's what's happening in chapter 5. The investiture of Jesus, the actual coronation of the Son. the radiance of God's glory. And this should be a core item on your prayer list, is it? Lord, show me your glory. Is that on your prayer list? I hope I'm on your prayer list. Pray for Steve, that poor thing <laughs> really needs a lot of help. Pray you can see the glory of God. That juice is worth the squeeze, as they say. And he's the exact representation of God's nature. The fullness of God abides in Jesus. There's no adjustment to that. There's no diminishing of that. If we've seen Jesus with the eyes of our heart, which is the only way you can see him now, if you've seen Jesus with the eyes of your heart, our heart, then we've seen God. He's the exact representation of his nature. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's not only the creator, but he's also the sustainer of the universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. 
The universe was created by the word of God, Genesis 1, and it is sustained by that same word through Jesus. So Jesus is there mixing it up with now they just told me, someone just told me that they have a trillion galaxies out there. We, apparently we miscounted or got a bigger telescope or something. A trillion galaxies. I mean, that's just a number just beyond. I mean, one or two or five galaxies is beyond my, my brain size. A trillion, I mean, you're just, stop counting, stop, start worshiping. Upholding everything by the word of his power and then making sure that we get to heaven holy and without blame, each one of us. So when you get in one of your little pity parties and start whining to the Lord, which all of us do, go, am I really gonna, you know, take my little pity party thing to Jesus while he's making the universe happen? I mean, he's glad to do it, but maybe my pity party's just, I just need to stop. Quit inviting Jesus to him and start believing and moving forward and entering into the kingdom of God with force. When he had made purification of sin, sin is a radical breach. Sin is an intolerable dynamic. God must address it. He must eliminate it. The eternal Son of God came into the world to address sin and evil, and he accomplished this by a once-for-all blood atonement on a Roman cross. Hebrews chapter 10 is just such a blessed chapter. Isn't it? Once for all time. No more bulls and goats every year. One sacrifice for all time. He made purification of sins. Sins has been addressed and evil will be fully and finally eradicated one day soon. And this Jesus through whom God is speaking in the last days is the one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is, of course, the language of Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my, my right hand till I make the enemies the footstool of your feet. Jesus fulfilled this in his ascension into heaven and subsequent, coron- subsequent coronation. It is the foundation of the great commission. And don't forget that. That little statement, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, go therefore, go in the power of my present reign. It's found everywhere in the apostolic preaching and in the apostolic letters. It's the final point Peter makes in his message in Acts 2, which we will get to. It's the culminating feature of the last days. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus reigns. Just quickly, it's just some other passages that we may not realize is talking about this very same thing. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul moves methodically through a list of features of our salvation. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, he talks about God's electing love and purpose. In verse 7, Christ's atonement. Grace is everywhere in this chapter, and grace is everywhere there, and you see it specifically stated in verse 8. And before he comes to this, these verses, or after he comes to these verses, he talks about <clears throat> the adoption, our adoption as children, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. But here in 9 and 10, Paul delineates the present reign of Christ. And notice what is said. Ephesians 1, 9, he made known unto us the mystery of his will. As it used to be hidden, but now he's making it known. It's made known unto us. He has done this. It is part of redemption. My brothers and sisters, don't think that this is just a sideshow or this is Christianity 401 or something. This is what God wants us to know. He wants us to understand what the last days are all about. It is core to Christianity. It's not secondary. According to the intention which he purposed in him, in Christ, God wants us to know this, and he has revealed it. And he talks about with a view to the administration of the fullness of times. 
Here's this phrase again. We saw it in Mark 1.15, the fullness of times. It's synonymous with the last days. This is not something to come in the future that we're waiting for. This is something established already. Starting in Acts chapter 2, the administration of the fullness of times has been around with us for 2,000 years. It's been happening. Christ has been at the right hand of God for 2,000 years. The gospel has been going into all the nations and breaking down all the barriers of opposition and unbelief and sin, breaking all of it down, and Jesus has been saving his people from their sin for 2,000 years. The church is not a failure. Something that's interesting, what do the people do in our day when they want to say, well, America's bad? They compare America to some utopian ideal that could never be realized, and they say America doesn't measure up, and, well, America's bad. What do normal people do? They say, okay, I've been around the world a little bit, or at least I've been around the world through YouTube, and America's great. Just, if, 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 if you want to think America isn't great, then I, then I encourage you to go on Rasta, R-O-S-T-A, and look at the nomadic, uh, I think they're from Afghanistan, but they might be from Iran. Look how those people, people live. I'm telling you, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a great experience. Rasta, remember that, and go Google it. Nomads. They have the whole family going to grandma's, walking on the sides of mountains with thousand-foot cliffs underneath them. That's just how they go to grandma's. It's incredible. So, if you don't like walking on the sides of thousand-foot cliffs, hanging onto wires with your family, going to grandma's, then America is the place to be. I'm just telling you, okay? In the administration of the fullness of times, God has brought his Christ into human history. And it's great to be a Christian and to live in it. God has purposed to bring all things into the domain of his Son. And this administration of the fullness of times, again, is an era. It's not an event. And it will continue until his second coming. And the rest of Ephesians 1 through 3 explains what's going on here. God is going to sum up all things in Christ. And all you have to do is read chapter 2. The middle wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down, right? And they're all brought into one new man. Summing up all things in Christ. Or chapter 3, the eternal purpose of God to make known unto principalities and powers now. First century, now. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Summing up all things, whether in heaven or on earth. It's right there in the epistle what he means. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time was come. Again, I just point this out. Galatians 3, chapter 3 and 4 is a great place for the history of redemption. Go there. Write it down on a piece of paper, mark it, put it, make your own chart, do whatever. Forget everything you've learned, read Galatians 3 and 4, write your chart down, and then see if it matches to what you've believed before. I did that and changed my life. Fullness of time. First Corinthians, these things happen to them as an example. The Old Testament, all things that happen in the wilderness, things like that, they're written for our instruction. Upon who? What? upon whom the ends of the earth have, have come, right? Ends of the ages. Paul just sort of throws this in. This is your identity. And it's an identity you're supposed to appreciate and know and embrace and believe and rejoice in. Second Timothy, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There's an expected framework of Christian ministry, and it's the eternal purpose of God. And the expected framework of Christian ministry is the sovereign grace of God. And when, <clears throat> which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is all this stuff, this holy calling, which was given to us before the ages began. And it has now been manifested by the appearing, that first coming of Jesus. That is what is being talked about. It's the same as Acts chapter 2, just different wording. It's the same thing, last days. We're in the last days. And this is the expected framework of Christianity as Paul writes to Timothy. If you're a minister of the gospel, you expect to know this and to preach within its framework. Titus chapter 1 and 2, the same thing. 
the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness and hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Again, the expected framework of Christian ministry is the eternal purpose of God and the sovereign grace of God. And though it was promised long ages ago, in its proper time, in the fullness of time, it was manifested and came into being in existence. This is equivalent with the last days. The expected framework of Christian ministry is the last days. It just is. And finally, should you ever use this in evangelism? Should you talk about the last days? Let me whip out this chart. You know, I got a little bit better one than Steve, but here it is. Should you ever do that in evangelism? Surely you'd think, nah, nah, we're just going to talk about Jesus, right? Acts chapter 17. Paul has to get the people up to speed with who God is because they didn't know who God was. They were all philosophers, Greek philosophers, had no knowledge of God. He brought them up to speed with who God is. And then he says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. There was a time in history previously in which God really passed you by. It's not like, it says in the King James, God winked at, it's really a bad translation. God passed them by. God left them to their own devices. God let them foam out their sin and pay the price for it. That you've heard the gospel in our ears, that in itself is a blessing from God. He said there was a period when God overlooked, God passed by this times of ignorance, but now, this eschatological now, this last days now, he is declaring unto men that they have responsibility and accountability and people everywhere should repent. And these last days culminate in a day of judgment. There is a day of the Lord. And so this framework of the Bible is something that should be always in your mind as you think, as you read the scriptures. And even as you talk to people, because every now and then it might pop up to be a significant thing. It was here for these people at Athens. Well, our time is long gone. And so, I don't know if I have anything to finish. Not just, here's the, here's the picture yet again. I hope it helps you. So let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we live in the last days. We do not live in the times before the flood where everyone was just left to their own sin and their own darkness and their own judgment. We thank you that we live in a time when there's worldwide gospel preaching because there wasn't that until Jesus came. Here and there, people knew God, but for the most part, the nations, and that would be us, were left to our own devices, our own misunderstandings, our own darkness, and we would have perished in our sin. Thank you, Lord, we live in the era of the gospel and that you've saved us and brought us to your son and we recognize who he is and we we recognize who we are. And Lord, give us a sense of this. Give us the sense of the blessedness that we live in the last days, that we've called upon your name and you've saved us and now we have an opportunity like no other human being. We get to present a gospel that's the power of God a gospel spoken by your son who's the heir of all things. Lord, let these things sink into our bones, shape and mold our hope, our faith, our love, our purpose, our Bible reading. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.